Hi, everyone. Welcome to this name drop edition of the San Diego News Fix. I'm your host, Christy Totten, and this podcast is brought to you by the San Diego Union Tribune. Name Drop is all about the amazing people from our region. Reverend Christopher Carter is definitely one of them. He's an assistant professor of theology and religious studies at University of San Diego, and he studies a really interesting and unique intersection of Christianity, food, and racial justice. He's the author of The Spirit of Soul Food, Race, Faith, and Food Justice. In this conversation, we discussed how he carved out such a unique career for himself. We talked about Black veganism and why he doesn't eat animal products. We also talked about how you can create a diet for yourself that reflects your own values. Dr. Carter is a really compassionate and amazing thinker, and I came away from this conversation inspired with a lot to think about. I hope you feel the same way. Well, Reverend Christopher Carter, uh, professor at University of San Diego, thank you so much for joining me on Name Drop. Oh, well, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you because you really do have an interesting job. You know, it's sort of the intersection of theology, food, dismantling racism. Like I've never met anybody else with this job. So how did you um, come up with this? You know, how did you get into this line of work? I don't know that anyone else exists with this job. So this may be, this may be, <laughs> like, I think I may be the only one. Uh, it, it wasn't a, in a sense, I would say it was a very direct path, even as I was just thinking about how I was answering your question, but it's maybe not one that everyone's willing to um, take. And so I guess, in, what, I, what I mean by that is at the very beginning, very, very beginning of the book in the preface, I start by saying, I didn't want to write this book, which is a way to start a book. But it's just me being very honest and 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 naming that, you know, to do this work requires a degree of vulnerability, you know, and I think that's a part of what allows me to um, have some degree of success. And so, uh, you know, I've all I grew up in a very religious household. I'm from the Midwest, from from Battle Creek, Michigan, um, and it's pretty typical, you know, in that community that everybody. Um, is um, religious, whether they're Christian or um, or Protestant or Roman Catholic or, you know, Jewish or whatever. Um, and so for me, as I got older, uh, with respect to how food got involved is so my grandpa was a migrant farm worker up until he was in, um, like, until he was an adult and he moved to Michigan and he got a job at a factory. And I grew up with him gardening and I run other family members who, like, basically had, like, homesteads. And so I was in appreciation for that and that and cooking and gardening and that to me just tied into my faith in as much as it was a matter of what we did on Sundays after church in terms of eating and <laughs> I began to think more critically about what does it mean to like live these values as an adult right what does it mean to like be a moral person what does it mean to take seriously um, the life of others and being a solidarity with others and being called to love others as you love yourself um, and so that brought me to thinking about how my food choices impact others, not just my family. And so as I began to take seriously the, and learn more about, I shouldn't take, just learn because so much of our food system is just rendered invisible, right? Like it's just, we just don't see. And when you begin to read about and, and actually explore, especially those of us who are in California, I mean, it is really, I mean, this is the majority of the produce in America is grown here. And so I took a trip from Los Angeles when I was in grad school up to San Francisco. And that was my first experience of seeing the five corridor and really seeing 
the farmer exploitation. And so that opened my eyes to take seriously their injustice they were experiencing. Um, so for me, it was just tying, tying, tying it together where I was like, you know, I, I want to eat in a way that's according to my values. My faith influences my values. The people who work in these fields and farm workers are predominantly people of color, predominantly immigrants. And so all these things end up tying together, not so much of uh, my own, you know, making, but because these were the communities I was in and these are the people being exploited. And, and I felt as though um, we ought to do something to make a change so people understand what we're doing to our planet, what we're doing to other people. Yeah, when you set out to learn about food systems and to learn to sort of eat ethically, like what were some of the things you learned that really surprised you? And um, in response, how did you change your way of eating? Man, I think the thing that surprised me the most, and this may sound naive, especially for those people who like um, are from Again, I'm, I mean, I'm, I can't explain how sheltered I was growing up in the Midwest. And so, like, so, you know, so for those who grew up in like, you know, coastal spaces, I'm thinking particularly California where I am now, I was just surprised how much undocumented labor actually grows our food. I think that just that shocked me. Like, I'm like, there's so many people who are growing food, who are undocumented, who are low wage, low, barely paid. Um, and that, again, these are people of color predominantly, not only just from Central and South America, but from really all, all over the world, again, that people don't know about. Um, and at the same time, the reason I say that shouldn't surprise me, because the history of growing food in America is actually undocumented, like theft of labor, like whether you're talking about the it, it literally theft of Black people, like purchased or the, like to grow the food, right, stealing their not only physical labor, but intellectual capacities, right? Because they brought over the skill sets to grow this food up through, you know, the kind of Jim and Jane Crow segregation, the, the bringing in of the Mexican and Latin American immigrants to now what we see immigrants coming from all over the world to grow this food. And so for me, that was the thing that just, I think, just surprised me again, because you go to the grocery store and you're so disconnected from the people who grow the food. And then the idea you have of the farmer is this really, you know, you know, guy in the country with the overalls growing food, and that's not it. It's a corporation, and and the real farmers are suffering, like really suffering. The people we actually think of as farmers, like, and, and those could be any race, it's mostly white in this country, and they're still really suffering from economic exploitation. And so, because of this, I guess what I decided to do was ask myself, okay, how can I opt out of this system? <laughs> how can I best opt out of this system? And that took form, took various forms. Um, one thing that I do and still continue to do, um, well, I used to. I have a garden, but I'm moving to Los Angeles. And so my garden right now is not growing anything because I'm preparing everything to move. So that is something I have to say. But beyond that, um, shopping at, um, I'm a part of a CSA, but also um, shopping at um, uh, organizations and, and places that have like, um, that work directly with farmers um, that allow you to make sure that the farmer is actually getting the appropriate um, compensation for the food that they're actually providing um, and trying to just work around the system. One of the things that obviously I talk about in the book a lot is I'm a vegan. Um, I practice what I call black veganism. We could talk more about that later, but basically the essence of this is I'm recognized that everybody can be vegan. So I talk about how might we be vegan and practice veganism in a way that's more accessible, but also that the exploitation that happens in these factory farms is particularly pervasive to the communities who work there and the communities who surround them. And so I just tried again to think of ways I could opt out 
of this system um, and, and shopping at co-ops, going to CSAs, going to farmers markets, growing food, um, not eating animal products as best as I can for some of the immediate things I could do. Um, and there's other things I do that I'd say are more activist things that can, we can talk about later as well. Yeah, that's super um, interesting. You know, when you were saying like being naive to the way that food works, I remember I once did a story where I was interviewing this woman that had a garden and this was in Las Vegas and she was growing a lot of really interesting stuff. So I was doing this feature and I was like, why did you start gardening? And she said, to feed my children. And it's like, we almost think of like gardening as like this quaint hobby that like you do in your free time, like not a necessity, you know, like that's how we removed we are. And I was like, how stupid and privileged am I, you know, to think like, because we're so removed from from um, growing our own food. So uh, anyway, I can relate um, to no, a realization like that, you know? Yeah, it, I mean, that just talks about, you know, a couple of things like not only economic privilege, but also just growing up in an urban area, you know, like, you know, urbanization is a big part of this. Uh, you know, one of the a quick funny story that I, I love to share, you know, my grandfather, again, from Mississippi, born in Brookhaven, which is like just north of Jackson. And, um, you know, still, you know, st just stopped gardening, you know, a few years ago, because he's, you know, in his late 80s. Um, when the label, when things started to be labeled organic at the grocery store, um, this was in, he's from tiny through, through Rivers, Michigan. So this is maybe 15 years ago. And um, he calls me and he's like, you know, Christopher, um, I just went to the store and there's these, these other produce there and it's called organic. And he's like, he's like, he's like, what does that mean? You know, cause he, you know, he does, he reads okay. Like he had to learn how to read as an adult. So he's trying to, you know, so he talks to me about these things. I'm like, oh, grandpa, that just means it doesn't have, you know, pesticides and hormones. And there's different kinds of ways they grow it to make sure it doesn't have some chemicals on there. And he's like, oh, it's like normal food. <laughs> <laughs> he was like I was like uh yeah That's he's like, oh. anymore, he's like, right? like so they're labeling the normal stuff he's like why don't they label the other stuff and it was really fascinating because in his mind what he was growing in his garden he's like well this yes. is the same thing I'm growing yes. like it's just normal you know right. and it was it's so interesting how our perspective shapes the way we think about these things right and that's the essence of your story right there too and, and that's we lose sight of that you know when we get removed from the land and from some of our older traditions mm-hmm yeah, that's a really powerful story. Like, I mean, he's right. That is normal. Why don't we label the other thing? Why don't we label the new, weird, genetically modified factory farm stuff? Anyway, I, I think Grandpa should be in charge. <laughs> you know, of food labeling. He's very, he's very wise. I'm telling you, he only <laughs> yeah. got a third grade education, but his his his. I mean, that's why I write about him so much in the book. My my grandpa and my grandmother were just like very wise, um, you know, self educated people, and I owe so much to. Uh, Honestly, I wouldn't be here without them. Uh, so it's it's a beautiful thing to be able to dedicate the book to them. Absolutely. Okay, so tell me more about Black veganism. Yeah, so Black veganism is a term that I'm borrowing from some friends of mine by the name of Af and Silco. They're activists who particularly write a lot about um, animal activism. And so I want to be clear, like my um, work, while I love animals, you know, <laughs> like animals are great. My wife is a veterinarian. So, you know, I am not vegan for the animals. My, as I kind of alluded to, you know, my veganism, my commitment to opting out of these systems stem from their impact on human beings. Um, the ways in which the people who work in these plants that are exploited are people of color. The fact that these plants are often in communities that are surrounded by people of color, that the pollution that they provide in these communities, you know, people of color, like we disproportionately harm by this system. And so I'm like, this is one reason we need to opt out, opt out of it. And so I, I, I coined the, or I use the term black veganism in my book 
to try to draw a distinction between the kind of veganism that just really centers on the oppressions of animals, doesn't take seriously the intersecting oppressions, the ways that it impacts the environment and people of color. And so by using that term, I want to call attention to that kind of um, hierarchy, you know, that takes place in these plants and the ways in which people can be exploited, but also as a means of kind of what Bell Hooks calls like consciousness raising. She talks about this with feminism and this idea of actually having these conversations around food that in recognizing that race is a part of those conversations. Like, you know, that's just a part of the kind of conversation we have to have in America because so much of our food is grown by people of color. It's very it's deeply racialized. And so I wanna be explicit about that so that we recognize um, the entanglements that we have, right? Um, almost like an edible entanglement, you know, <laughs> like the things are all kind of linked together. And so black veganism is, is a way to kind of call attention to that concept. Um, and, and also recognizes, the last thing I'll say is, um, you know, what I describe in the book is it's a way of thinking about what we eat. So the fancy work of this is ontology, but really what I mean is thinking critically about how we eat and the ways in which it impacts both human and non-human others. Um, and so not everybody can be uh, kind of vegan in the way in which I describe in the book. And I also talk about this, like this isn't, I grew up poor, it wasn't possible for me to be vegan, um, but I could eat less meat. I could eat in ways that are better for the planet, better for my community. I can eat in ways that, um, what I would say is a solidarity with the oppressed. And given that, I would say that I was trying to move towards a vegan praxis, a way of being, you know, that kind of thinking. And so the pressure for me now, I think pressure maybe isn't the right word, but the goal for me now as someone who's solidly middle-class and an activist is how can I create the opportunities for people to be able to eat in a way that's in line with their values. Like a lot of people, you know, this is, they're eating what they have the opportunity to eat. The choices are so limited because the system has been designed to limit those choices. And so it's our responsibility to help overturn those systems of oppression and marginalization so people have options. Um. Yeah, I mean, how would you recommend, you know, that people get conscious about eating in an ethical way? You know, it's like, I think all of us want to do the right thing for the environment, for other people, but where do you begin? Man, that's such a... <laughs> so I, basically, I teach a class on food and religion where I have 13 weeks to teach people how to do this. So, <laughs> You're like, sign, sign up now. Long, I'm sure there's a wait list. <laughs> it's a long... It, actually, there is wait list. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's, it's a long process because it's not and I guess I want to go return to the fact that if anybody's listening to this and you feel a sense of shame and guilt um feel that because that's true and that's real um and and honor that part of you that feels that way but also recognize underneath that is a desire to be different and do different and, and live different in the world and also recognize at the same time that this our food system is designed to render these things invisible like it's literally designed for you not to see what's happening. That's how it's designed to function. So the fact that you don't know how to do that, that means the system is working well. Um, so what I would encourage you to do, uh, not only for people just to watch, you know, documentaries and maybe read some books, but most explicitly first think about, again, I say I try to eat in alignment with my values. Like think about your values, like really what does matter to you. And so for me, it was, you know, justice, compassion, love, like this idea of loving my neighbor was really important to me. And then I thought, okay, how am I eating in ways that are reflective or not reflecting this? And I began to trace back the roots of where some of my foods were coming from. It's impossible for us to eat in a way that is what we might call like this um, 
you know, pure land or without recognizing that there's exploitation that takes place because of the systems, because of our food system. All we can do is try to do better and be better. And so that's why I talked about like, you know, working with CSAs, um, working with food co-ops, working with farmers markets, like going to direct to consumer. One of the things I talk about in my book, and there's not one here, but there's a bunch of them that are out in the Midwest and the East Coast that I've interviewed and worked with, um, where they're like uh, community food hubs. And so one example that I like to plug is the Black Church Food Security Network, which is doing amazing work in Baltimore. And and, they, and lots of people come to this that aren't Black, but it's just run by a Black church. And so what they do is they work with farmers. They work directly with farmers to um, basically be like a hub. And so they'll say, okay, these are the things we know we're going to have this week because they go down to the farms on the weekends and they pick up the produce. They usually do it twice a week and they bring it and people come in. Basically, it's like a small scale farmer's market, but direct to consumer. But because, they're, but because it's a church and they're trying to make money. All the only overhead they have is to cover fuel and to pay people's salaries to drive the trucks. And so food can be, it's just cheaper. Like it's literally cheaper and the farmer still makes more money, right? Like the food costs less and the farmer makes more. Like it is, it is a win-win. Um, and so it's creating these kind of networks. And so that's what I'm trying to do on the West Coast. Um, and that's what I think, you know, a lot of these food service or a lot of justice organizations, we can be moving towards, especially in places like California, because we can grow food year round here. And a lot of places don't have that option. Um, and so I know that's not like a neat and clean answer, um, because it is kind of contextual. But I, I honestly think beginning by thinking about your values is a really good start that a lot of people don't necessarily take the time to do that they could that I think would prove to be fruitful for them. Mm -hmm. Well, I love this conversation and that it focuses on humans, you know, like you were saying, I think we hear a lot of don't eat meat because it hurts animals or don't eat meat because factory farming hurts the environment, which does hurt people. But like, I like thinking of it directly as like this harms people, you know, um, yeah. <laughs> I, I have more questions for you um, about food farming theology and more, but I want to jump into a quick, hopefully fun lightning round. Um, and my first question for you are what are, what are some of your favorite and least favorite foods? Oh man, it's easy to talk about favorite foods. Least okay. favorite, I'm like, that's a, so favorite foods, I should say coming, so I went to grad school in um, outside of Los Angeles in the Claremont colleges, right? So just, you know, and I would say being in Southern California for the last, I don't know, 15 years or so, um, I love Mexican food. Like I did not have real Mexican food until I moved out. Like, you know, what I had in Michigan was not, was not it. And I, and so I would say my diet consists of a combination of probably 40% vegan Mexican foods and like 30% like what I would call black soul food. And then just like randomly other stuff. I mean, I eat the majority of food I eat is, is Mexican. It is amazing. It's delicious. And so I would say that's definitely a favorite. And then um, you know, my, you know, I love red beans and rice is one of my favorite things I talk about a lot about in the book. Um, I just literally ate that last night. And the last thing I'll say in terms of favorite is pizza. I love, I make my own pizzas. Um, you know, I've actually, I love, I love to cook, man. Like I love to bake. <laughs> like, I, like, like I love to eat. Yeah. I mean, I, I love to eat too. And I, I would say I literally started cooking because I love to eat. Right. So I just got this really good uh, bread book uh, by Mark Bittman. Bart, Mark Bittman is a good friend of mine. And um, so I started making my own dough now. And I'm just like, yeah. It's, That's amazing. Uh, it's just fun. And I think mm -hmm. we have to make space for like being creative. Some of the, I think this is so tied to food justice, right? In yeah. terms of 
not thinking about it like work, but just fun. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Mark Bittman, that's so crazy. Yeah, no, it was crazy. It's, it is crazy. I, you know, if you were to tell me when I was, you know, in 20, not in college, didn't go to college, right, that I was going to do what I'm doing now. I mean, it's, I don't think any of my high school teachers, I have one teacher who will believe it, like no one else. Um, I wouldn't have believed it either. So it's, um, you know, it's been, a, it's been, a, it's been beautiful, you know. Mm-hmm. I'm yeah, that's, that's really cool. I mean, what did you grow up thinking you were going to do? Oh God, I um, uh, probably just get a job. You know, my um, I'm the first person in my family to go to college. Um, my mother's generation was the first to graduate high school. You know, my my grandpa again went to school to like third grade. Then he was working in the field. So my grandmother didn't ever go to school. Um, you know, and so we were you know poor. Uh, and I graduated high school and got a job at a grocery store and worked and worked my way up. And I was thought I would probably stay at the grocery store till I retired <laughs> like I didn't have a plan my wife made me go to college um because I got married young and and that's where I think I realized that isn't I was asking that's where I think I knew when I was in college that I was I came to the awareness of that how smart I was where I was like because in high school I was I just wasn't taking it very seriously I was fine but I wasn't like you know I didn't really enjoy it college is where I really learned a little bit about who I am and and um, I think it helped me going as an adult you know I didn't want to go party in my early 20s I was already married and settled down and um and that's where I really felt like I found my calling so I tell people you know you don't have to do the typical path you know um I'm really the hard work that I saw growing up you know seeing my grandpa like working through his back basically like doesn't function anymore and my mom like work herself to having lupus and she's sick and I took the same kind of work ethic and applied to my professional life um and I'm grateful that I can provide for them now um but they don't have to worry about money you know it's Mm -hmm. it's a beautiful thing and so um so I just feel like uh I don't know what I was gonna do but I thought whatever I would do I would do my best and so that's kind of my um that's kind of what I'm trying to live out right now Thank you. That's a beautiful, that almost made me cry. That was a beautiful question. (laughs) No, that's a beautiful response. It's so um, inspiring and touching. And I think it's so cool how you've really carved out like a very interesting, you know, very unique um, job that's like just for you, you know, Um, that's that's amazing. Uh, And when they can't fire you, that's all I'm saying. They can't fire you. Have you like been able to or tried to uh change the way that like your family members your loved ones eat you know because I know that sometimes it can be harder to to change the ways of older generations I mean how has your family responded to to your work in veganism interestingly I would say um there's only been one person who's been resistant mostly that's my stepdad but he's just you know he's from Missouri that's just kind of him his own stuff but uh and I actually I wrote about this in a piece I did for LA Times I talked about his um his my stressors around him but I remember talking to my grandfather um when I was uh drafting the second draft of the book and um about what he ate growing up because I tell these stories in there about that and he basically was predominantly vegetarian because they just didn't have access to meat and you know and and so I think that gave me the kind of confidence to be like oh okay this is still I can eat this way and still be black that was my challenge it was like how can I identify my culture and still eat this way um and so for my family because I actually like to cook and I do most of the cooking they don't complain about it because it tastes really good you know they're like it so they're like oh you know this is what it is and um my sister doesn't eat she she I would say she's almost vegetarian like she doesn't barely eat any meat 
my younger brother, my youngest brother barely eats any meat. Um, and uh, my grandfather is vegetarian. And so um, some of it, but it wasn't like me. I'm not, a, I'm not a preachy vegan. I'm not that, you know, person. It's just cooking and telling stories and giving people a vision of how we can eat in a way that feels like us, you know, mm-hmm. has to feel like us and feel like our stories. Um, and that's been great. You know, uh, my stepdad, you know, he just, I think he struggles with the masculine aspects of not eating meat. Uh, and that's just a big, you know, and that's a challenge for some men who, you know, struggle with uh, some insecurity issues around masculinity. <laughs> yeah. Um, what did I, I lost, you made me laugh and I lost my, my train of thought, but what was I going to ask you? I really wanted to know. Um, oh, you mentioned like, you know, fitting in and the sense of belonging about like, can I still be black if I don't eat this? Like, ha- is that something that you really had to, to face? I mean, I think that, you know, so much of like our cultural identity is tied to food, you know, and like you, you ha- if you're one of us, you have to eat this. Like what has been your experience? Yeah, man, it was, I would say among the hardest parts of uh, transitioning, you know, from being to vegetarian to veganism was feeling like I could still be a part of my community. And for me, that was particularly hard because, you know, not only was I making like um, transition from a dietary transition, I was making like a class transition, you know, that was huge, you know, so, you know, when I go back home, um, like I was just in Michigan in May, you know, the community I hang, I hang out with, like no one has anything beyond a high school education, right? It's just the community. And like, I'm like the one that like got up and got out and everybody's still great people. You know what I'm saying? Like real good people, but that's just not what we do. Like everybody got jobs and factories. And like I said, that's what I would have thought I was going to be doing as well. Um, and so I had this tension of being like, oh, I'm going away. And people like, oh, do you think you're better than us? You know, because you went to California, which for them is like going to Mars, you know? <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, um, and so that's weighing on me, like to make sure that they still see me as a part of the community. And then being like, okay, I'm, I'm going to be a vegetarian and vegan. They're like, oh, now nah, he really thinks he's like lost touch with who his roots. And so I had to, cooking is what helped me demonstrate to them that um, you know, I am still connected to what it means for me to be Black in this particular way, but also I had to disrupt these dominant narratives around eating healthy and eating vegetarian or vegan as something that's specifically white. You know, so much of that is like we think of like whole foods, like it's for these this one group. And I'm like, since when is eating this way just the domain of this elite group of people, right? And so we also have access to these ways of thinking. And so some of it was about connect, helping them see the history. So, so much of the book is about a, a drawing a, a connection of us to our agricultural history and our roots. So we can see that this is a part of, for Black folks especially, um, you know, a part of who we are and who we always have been. Um, it's not just something that's, you know, been impressed upon us from enslavement, but we bring an agricultural tradition with us um, that honestly is the foundation of the food system in America. I have uh, yet to, to read your book, but I'm really, I'm really looking forward to it. <laughs> um, okay, I, I can't let you off the hook, though, for your least favorite food. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> I was, that was, I like totally pivoted away from it. I was like, I always talk about that. I, there isn't, I mean, I'm, it's tough because I'm allergic to fish. So I really, you know, I I can't eat shellfish or fish, but I'm a vegan. So that doesn't really matter. But, you know, there really isn't anything that actively like, I'm just like, oh, this doesn't, this doesn't taste, you know, good. Uh, I feel like, you know, if I can 
season something or I can do something to it, I can kind of make anything, you know, work and, 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 and taste good. Um, so yeah, I have a hard time saying this is my like least favorite. There isn't anything I haven't, that I've had that I'm like, oh, this isn't, you know, good or anything like that. So um, I've had some, I would say the most unique food and that's a good way to say it is my time I taught in Korea for two summers mm. and that was some of the most unique, it's delicious. But like I had to figure out, like okay, this is this is different. Like I mean, some different. Like this. Mm-hmm. Like Were you eating idea. meat at the time? But you, uh, I wasn't. Eating... Oh, okay. I wasn't. I wasn't. And so like then trying to figure out how not to eat meat there, and some of the culture, the Buddhist part of Korea was fine, but then other parts, it's a very meat centric space, and so it was definitely trying to navigate all that stuff. Um, but but yeah, so I would say that's been the most unique place I've been with respect to food. That's a good answer. What is something you're into that has nothing to do with your your jobs? Sports. Like okay. I, before before we got on, I was listening to the NBA free agency stuff on the <laughs> Like I um if I part of the reason I didn't well, I was average in high school was at one part of my former life I used to be really athletic and I thought I would play basketball in college and I was going to play basketball in college but for lots of reasons that didn't happen which not that I would have been like anybody really good but that was the way I was going to go to school was through athletics um and and so um you know sports for me I learned so much about how to be a good teammate how to be a good person through sports like it's when I when I'm I'm I am a advisor to many student athletes at USD and they don't even study religion, but I think I can connect to them because I have them understand like how to translate their skills playing to everyday life. And I mm-hmm. felt like for me, you know, playing AAU basketball as a kid, really young kid and doing this travel league stuff, um, I learned a lot and I, I absolutely love sports. Like if I could, if I could get, if I could be on something that wasn't even paid, but it was like a well-known podcast or or something like that I would totally do it because uh if I'm not reading about religion food or racism I'm probably reading about sports you should start one ah maybe I don't know if I'm interesting enough oh <laughs> I, I'm you, sure that, I'm sure that you are um I'm not a sports guy and obviously not an athlete but um, <laughs> I can see how it brings people together you know like I lived in Las Vegas when we got our first professional team which was the Golden Knights the hockey yeah. team and it was incredible. You know, I had lived in the city that never had a sports team. And so I didn't realize like the camaraderie there. And that was really incredible to see, especially because it happened right after the Las Vegas shooting. And then they went, you know, to the finals and it was like so empowering and awesome. You know, even if you're not a part of it, when you're on the outside of it, you now have this, this thing to rally around. So I, I can appreciate it. Yeah. Um, what are some local farms or CSAs um, or stores that you can recommend here uh, for, you know, getting good food? The one that I go to is the OB People's Market. So it's an Ocean Beach. Um, that's the one I would highly recommend. Um, that's honestly, I think, the best one in the community um, in terms of variety, in terms of pricing. In um, any of the farmer's markets, um, there's one in Ocean Beach that's pretty good. Uh, the one in Little Italy is pretty good. It's not, it's the Ocean Beach and Little Italy probably have about the same, you know, unfortunately, prices aren't always the same, even if the spenders are the same. And that's just, something that I try to recognize interesting yeah I mean it's it, you try to understand that you know the farmers are also trying to figure out how they can maximize the revenue as well and so you know I, I understand that so if you can make it to the ocean beach when you pay a little less than you pay at the one little Italy uh, <laughs> uh, but both of those farmers markets are really really good um, I, I would say almost any of the CSAs that you can get locally are going to be good here I don't want to say just one 
Uh, I've, I've used three of them and have, I've found good things with all of them. Um, the one I'm trying to get a name that we use right now, oh, it's a Japanese farmer actually in um, North County. Oh, you know what's funny? This is like just a big coincidence. I actually just signed up for it. I'm going to show you. I don't know. I don't know. It's like literally I brought it in and set it on my kitchen table before we started talking. <laughs> Hold on. Look at this. It's like so it's Yasu Gucci or whatever. Can you see yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's the one we get. Look yeah, at yeah. it. Yeah. It's so good. It's so beautiful. <laughs> like I have no way of showing you this. But yep. I'm saying so it's the same one. So that, yeah. one's, that one's really, really good. Um, And I think what I appreciate about them is you know, it's a big box, but it's enough things in there where I can figure out how to make a meal. And one of the challenges is with getting those is, is honestly cooking, you know, mm -hmm. people and, and cooking, for, especially for women, you know, you have to deal with unpacking the ways in which the kitchen's been like this thing pressed upon you that you have to learn how to do, which you can make people resistant, you know. Um, and so there's a kind of a healing, a healing needs to take place in terms of that kind of trauma that you might have or we could have around cooking but also about time you know how many of us are just overextended to where we don't feel like we have time to cook and so that's another challenge of trying to carve out that time not seeing it as something you have to carve out but like scheduling it first like this is something that we see as soul care right how am I so so for instance my son like I, he cooks with me all the time because that's why we tell stories. I tell, I tell him stories about his grandmother, his great-grandmother he's never had a chance to meet, um, his, uh, on his mother's side, his family's never had a chance to meet, like things that we used to eat. Um, and it takes longer, but it's a event. And, you know, it's a way for me to kind of connect with my three-year-old and for him to learn about his culture, his various cultures. And so, um, you know, I try to see it as formation, you know, and, and that makes it a little bit better. Um, it, ma it makes me less stressed about getting everything done a certain amount of time. Um, so, so yeah, there's ways we can try to work around it, but I do, I want to recognize, I know it's challenging for many people because cooking takes a lot of time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well said. Well, um, I have taken more of your time than I promised to, but I just have one final question for you, which is you mentioned you're moving to LA. What will you be doing up there? I mean, just what's next in your career in general and will you continue to teach at USD? Yeah, so I, I'm on sabbatical, so I have a, I'll be on sabbatical, so I'm moving to Los Angeles so I could uh, do a couple of things. I'm going to be um, working at uh, Westwood United Methodist Church, uh, helping them um, in their kind of social justice ministries that are going to be thinking and focusing on food moving forward. Uh, I'm going to be doing some research at UCLA, uh, so Westwood makes a lot of sense, but also doing some research on in Africa, I'm going to be spending about six weeks in Africa coming up, um, looking at um, agricultural practices out there and the ways in which they tie into religion um, and religious identities and ideas. Uh, and, and so Los Angeles, for me, for a sabbatical year, is just really convenient um, and gives us a chance for me to uh, go to a place that's a bit more diverse, uh, that, I, that I think for me um, feels a bit more like up my alley. You know, I can't really complain about San Diego, man, because the weather is great. We go to the beach all the time. <laughs> mm -hmm. it's not, to me, it's like, you know, I'm not, you know, like, I'm not hating, but both places for me are, are really comfortable. And so, so yeah, I'll be up there for a year. Awesome. That sounds like an incredible adventure. Yeah, no, I'm really excited. I've never got a chance to go to Africa, especially. And um, I was able to get a grant that helped fund most of that. So I'm really excited to go and be in Uganda and South Africa um, and be able to take my family. Um, and so it'll be really cool. 
Awesome. Well, I can't, I can't wait to see the work that comes out of it. But um, Dr. Carter, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for sharing uh, your story. This has been really enlightening. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. And thanks for sharing some of your stories. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was great talking to you. Thank you again to Dr. Carter for joining me on this name drop edition of the San Diego News Fix. And thank you for listening.